Hello Void, and thank you for joining me. You are consuming episode 7 of the Nerdislav podcast with John Paul Haas. It's been a while, hasn't it? I have recorded a few podcasts in between, but the last Nerdislav podcast, radio one, was on September 2nd, so quite some time. Still, I'm back, and I am happy to record an episode of more kind of nerdy stuff for a change. A lot of cycling in the past few weeks, and we are not going to be completely free of it anyway, but it's nice to be able to talk about other topics like The Witcher, etc., etc. So what is to be expected on today's Nerdist Love? I already mentioned that I want to talk about The Witcher, both the game and the Netflix show. Then I will talk a little bit about the Telltale Games and what has been happening there. On the wrestling side of things, I really want to talk about something that's been on my mind for a while, and that is the title situation in WWE. And I have a little bit of a creative slash maybe even controversial take on this. And finally, I will talk a little bit about the UCI Road World Championships, the team time trail just took place and we have a week worth of racing ahead of us if you are a cycling fan as much as i am there is a lot to look forward to so i will spend a few moments talking about that towards the end anyway thanks for being here void you're listening to the nerdislav podcast with john paul hoss and i'll be right back with the gaming topics okay let's talk about gaming then Witcher in particular. So I finished Witcher 3, all of it, in its entirety. Took me about 180 hours, and that means with the DLCs and all of that. And I think that I had fun for 99.9% of all that time. There have been some moments that I found a little bit frustrating, maybe the grind that you need to do to get a lot of money, to purchase things, to craft things, that was a little annoying. I think some of the components of that could have been ironed out, but overall, the stories, the characters, everything just really, really worked for me. The original game, so the Wild Hunt, the ending that I got was really nice, a little bit bittersweet, but I think that's quite in line with what Witcher is as a whole in terms of franchise, in terms of storytelling. So I quite enjoyed that ending. Spoiler, I got the ending where Ciri goes to Nilfgaard and becomes the Empress. I think that was actually really cool because it comes down to her choice. If you do particular decisions differently than I did, you can make Ciri stay with you or remain a witcher, but that's not really her decision if you think about it. It is decision of you as the player or by proxy you as Geralt to not have her talk to Emrys in Vizima. And as a result of that, Ciri doesn't make the decision kind of on her own. She makes it based on the information you provide her or the chances and opportunities you provide her. So I decided to give her the full spectrum and then have her decide. And she decided the way she did. It was, again, 
a little bit bittersweet, but I liked it. Now, Hearts of Stone, that one I thought was particularly brutal and, again, a little bit heartbreaking or, you know, a little bit, quite a bit heartbreaking, to be honest. The whole story of Everek was awesome. I really ended up both kind of hating and feeling sorry for the Everek family and Olgierd. I also have to say that in terms of villains, I did enjoy Gunter Odim or Master of Mirrors a lot more than Eredin or any of the villains in the basic game, save one exception, and that would be the Crones. I like the mysticism of those villains, the fact that you are never quite sure what they are, and you really never quite get a full glimpse of their power when with the wild hunt it ends up being just elves in a pumped up armor right yes the power there comes from the numbers and the technology the magic that they wield but with Gunter or dim or the crones in the basic game the scariness the villainous nature comes from the fact that you don't quite grasp how powerful they might be and you never fully find out. So dealing with Gontr Odim and the implications of it all, the fact that he is in the background of all of the major scenes in Hearts of Stone, that was just quite awesome. And the fact that he actually appears in the Wild Hunt at the very beginning in White Orchard, and then, again, he actually makes a reappearance in Blood and Wine. If you go through a particular questline in a specific way, you will hear a story that has Master of Mirrors theme behind it as you know, playing in the background. And you start realizing, oh, this mystic, unknown beggar that appears in this story was probably Master of Mirrors. And the story kind of alludes to that, too. So I really liked Heart of Stone, plus having Shani pop up again after being missing in Witcher 2. I remember seeing her, of course, in Witcher 1, and then she's kind of gone. So having her come back in this final installment of the trilogy was really nice and satisfying. Blood and Wine as the final expansion that adds a whole new map, a whole new continent to explore was a great way to wrap up the Witcher 3 game and the original Geralt trilogy. To me, the stakes didn't feel quite as high as maybe in Hearts of Stone. I felt that the Hearts of Stone story was a little bit more high stakes, although this kind of murder mystery, who is behind these gruesome murders in Toussaint, that was awesome. Being able to interact with some favorite book characters was also really nice. The Duchessa, that was awesome. The vampires, of course, really cool. I liked it. The conclusion, of course, was amazing. That huge payoff where you get your own vineyard, your own estate as a witcher that is probably nearing the end of hunting career 
I thought it was a fitting conclusion. I, of course, got Yennefer at the end of the game to come visit Geralt at the Corvo Bianco estate, and that was really nice and heartwarming. The only thing that made me a little bit sad was that I wish there was a way to interact with the other major companions from the game at Corvo Bianco. It doesn't mean there isn't, there are mods that let you do it, but I thought it would be nice at least to get Siri to come in canonically. It would be very nice also to get Dandelion, of course, just so you have a chance to talk to these characters one more time before the game wraps up. Because if you want them to show up, you basically need to replay the original game and make specific decisions that maybe I don't want to make, or I don't feel like making, so maybe if I decide to do a new game plus, I still might. The Witcher withdrawal is real. I might make some new decisions, some different decisions, so I do get Siri, so I do get Dandelion, so I maybe do get even Triss to come and show up at the Corvo Bianco estate and get that post credit scene with them. Or maybe I'll just mod it in and see what those dialogue options are and leave it at that. I'll have to decide. But overall, the game was great. It left me with that feeling of happiness and a little bit of sadness that you get when you finish a really good book or a really good movie or a really good video game. The fact that you love these characters, you love the story, and you went on this magical, gruesome sometimes, but very fulfilling journey with them, and now it's over. There is no more to be done, there is no more to be explored. Of course, you can always replay the game, make some new decisions, that's fine. But if you're like me and you've spent 180 almost hours on the game, there is very little that you can do that you haven't done in the original game. So I may not even go through the new game plus stuff because I just don't feel the need to, at least not now. If somewhere down the line I want to replay the game, I want to revisit it, I will absolutely start with new game plus just so I get to enjoy the magical power of legendary witcher armors. But other than that, I think that's all for me in terms of witcher game. I don't feel a particular need to replay any of the earlier ones. I am very grateful I get to play them, don't get me wrong. It was a lot of fun, but that is wrapped up for me. It's not like in Mass Effect where with the third installment, I only need to spend about half the time that I spend on The Witcher or maybe even third of the time to get to the ending and to explore the ending with all of my partners, all of my favorite characters. So replaying 170 or 180 hours worth of the game, just not for me, but I am definitely grateful for that experience. Don't get me wrong. Now it just comes down to what the hell am I going to play next? I started with Pillars of Eternity, the first one, of course. I want to go through first Pillars and then go to second one. It gives me that old-school Baldur's Gate, Icewind Dale kind of vibe, which is obviously what they were going for. But there is clearly a lot of new stuff, new game mechanics imported. And I love it. I love this merger of old and new. So that's what I've been exploring so far, and I've been having fun. 
we'll see how long I will keep having this fun and if I'm able to stay invested. So far, I've just been invested because it's been fun exploring the new world, getting to know the new characters. The main story has obviously kicked in already, but it's not like I've really progressed too far along that main storyline. So I have to see if I'm invested. So far, I'm more invested in the side quests than in the main storyline. So that's where I'm at with regards to pillars. And of course, the Pathfinder RPG game is coming up soon. And I should actually have the code in my mailbox soon or already. So maybe I will give that a shot. Although I like to wait with Kickstarter games and kind of these early access games for a while. I like to give them some time to get all the kinks and errors and bugs ironed out. So I might wait for that until later down the line. Let's talk about Witcher some more and I want to talk about the Netflix series of course in between my last Nerdislav podcast and this one Henry Cavill has been announced as the actor who will portray Geralt which has been completely out of the left field for me I did not anticipate that at all but on the other hand not a bad choice, I think. Some people have complained that he's going to be too much of a baby face. And to those people, I will say, hey, folks, think about what awesome stuff can prosthetics and makeup artists do. He's going to look great no matter what, especially if we are looking at the Witcher journey, maybe even from the original short stories, then having a younger Geralt will absolutely make sense. Now, I am not worried there at all. I think Henry Cavill is a skilled actor who is a fan of the game and he will do the role justice. I have no doubt about that. I'm looking forward to seeing what he can do. Now, there is obviously that elephant in the room that I will also address and that's the casting notes for Siri. So apparently, we are going to get Siri who is a non-white actress. And as it's bound to do, it has created a lot of backlash on the internet where fans from the United States, fans from Europe, fans from all over the world started collectively freaking out. Not all of them, but some definitely in the negative way, saying, oh, how dare you? How dare you change this? And to that, I have a few thoughts to say. I will just say, why not? Why not have a non-white actress portray Siri? Do we actually know exactly how she looks like? I mean, there are clear indications of Siri in the books, which is white ashen hair and bright green eyes. If the Siri that appears in the show looks like that, has those chief attributes, then I have no problem with her skin color. Of course, why should we even criticize that? I've seen some fans voice their concern as in, oh, this is a Polish thing, Polish people have invested their heritage into this franchise and to that I will say a couple of things. Number one, whenever I see 
this argument thrown around, more often than not, it's thrown on by folks who use like swastikas and all sorts of neo-Nazi even imagery as their avatars. And not all the time, of course, but most of the time. And when I see that, I will not listen to your argument because number one, if you are a Pole and you use that kind of imagery as your avatar, what the heck? There is some clear cognitive dissonance going on here, but we'll put that on the side for now. But two, there is no Poland in the Witcher universe. And even Andrzej Sapkowski has been very open to using his work in a more adapted fashion. So he is not really that worried about the showrunners of the Netflix series changing things here and there. And three, I mean, Poles, I'm sorry, but you had your chance at this. You had your shot in the early 2000s with that The Edgeman show. And it didn't turn out particularly well. Remember that. If you want your all-white cast, oh, by all means, go and watch that piece of crap that that show has been... And when I say piece of crap, I'm saying that with a little bit of fondness because that's a show that I watched when I was growing up. But really, you want to take the white Slavic crew over good storytelling, over good scripts, over faithful adaptation of the story itself, not just how the characters are supposed to look. I mean, really? Is that the hill you want to die on? The fact that one character doesn't exactly match the white Slavic archetype? I am not gonna do that. I am gonna keep my mind open and I'm gonna be excited about brave storytellers, brave showrunners trying to do something slightly different. And honestly, if you want your all-white cast, how about you just reread the books? Imagine the characters how you want them to be. No one's stopping you. Just don't give me all of that. We'll remake it and we'll boycott it and yada yada. That didn't work out for Star Wars and it will not work here. And I think it's just petulant. Finally, in terms of gaming topics, I do want to address the Telltale Games closing doors. It's very sad every time a studio closes doors especially so out of the blue and so many talented game developers and artists are thrown out of the door with no severance payment. I think it's terrible and I think it's super sad. But it also shows how much of trouble the studio has been in ever since that restructuring. Even before, actually, because they restructured in response to the problems that were going behind the scenes and we really didn't know exactly the scope of them. Clearly, the scope has been huge. Now you have a crew of very talented people without jobs, some of them who only recently started working there, which I think is super sad if you start your new job and the next week you're basically told tough luck, you're out. Fortunately, from what I understand, folks at Blizzard, folks at the Sony studios in that area 
Naughty Dog and others have really stepped in and offered to help the offloaded workers from Telltale to find new jobs, which I think is really nice, seeing the industry kind of come together and help out. That's beautiful. But it lets me wonder what happened there. And Jim Sterling has published a great op-ed, Jimquisition, just this morning. I'm recording it on Monday, September 24th. So just this morning, Jim Sterling has published his take, and I will not rehash his points. I'm just going to say that I agree with what he said. He has been looking at the fact that these games that Telltale has published all ended up looking very samey. And in the world where you have other studios approaching this genre of storytelling adventure game in a new way, like the Life is Strange series, you need to innovate. You need to come up with something new. And that's something that Telltale didn't do. Their coming up with something new was basically just getting more and more and more franchises to slap onto that tried and true formula, which ended up hurting the studio in the long run. And the stories that are coming up about all the crunches and the fact that the higher-ups were trying to buy off the devs with cheap alcohol and that kind of stuff is just really nasty. That is no other better way to put it. And it also, as Jim Sterling mentioned as well, gets us think about the structure of these episodic games. I wonder how many people decided to wait until all the episodic components release as one big bundle and then purchase it because who wants to wait if you finish one part of the game? I had that experience with The Wolf Among Us where I finished the first chapter. I'm like, okay, now I get to wait for so long before the next chapter drops and over time you kind of lose interest. So it's better to, I think, wait until all the episodes are released and then buy it. But if you do it with all the games and if Telltale is counting actually on people buying the episodes and them getting revenue that way, that might be a little difficult if people just decide not to do that. You might not be getting enough money in the intervals that you need to keep running the studio. So maybe worth considering how the game industry will adapt to this episodic content style. I haven't seen it much outside of these storytelling games. The only game other than Telltale or Life is Strange was at the most recent Hitman game. So there it worked, but it's a different genre. And I think a lot of people still waited to get the whole package rather than buying the Hitman game piece by piece as the episodes were released. So seeing, of course, a talented group of people being just thrown out of the door on the curb without as much as a goodbye almost was heartbreaking. I hope they will all find jobs in other studios. They absolutely deserve it. Whether it's surprising or not, what has happened to Telltale? I don't think so. People in the higher up management have been crap for a long time there. People haven't treated the devs well. The business decisions have been 
kind of iffy, kind of questionable. So it's sad that we've lost Telltale. I think with a proper direction, they could have found a new way forward, kind of taking what made Telltale Telltale and adopted for 2018 and onwards. Now we never will get that. And maybe there will be a way to resurrect Telltale or the devs from Telltale will do what so many other developers do and form their own mini studio and go to Kickstarter or Fig or any other crowdfunding site to create a new project. Why not? If there are enough fans for this kind of game, I'm sure they'll be able to sponsor a new game and hey maybe unstifled by the constraints of what a telltale game is supposed to be these devs will be able to really let their creative juices flow and come up with something truly innovative i am cautiously optimistic i'm looking forward to it and to everyone affected by this situation again i hope you find your new job really quickly Being jobless sucks. I've experienced it. I don't wish it on anyone. So good luck. Keep trucking along. And that's it for the gaming part of this week's Nerdislav podcast. When I get back, we'll talk a little bit about wrestling. So Void, don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Nerdislav podcast with John Paul Haas. I will be right back. And we are back, Void. You are still listening to the Nerdist Love Podcast with John Paul Haas. And now, let me talk to you a little bit about wrestling. And I'm not going to talk about specific event or specific match, more about this general idea that I've had for a while with regards to what's happening in WWE and with their titles. Now... We can talk about so many different things with regards to WWE. The fact that Vince McMahon and the creative team has a particular way of doing things that we as more indie fans may not agree with. Clearly, it's earning them money. Clearly, Roman Reigns and folks like that are filling seats at the house shows. They are selling merchandise. So there is no way we as a bunch of smarks can convince the higher ups at WWE that things should change. And really, do they need to? We have the products that cater to us. We have NJPW, Ring of Honor. Of course, the whole all-in experience has been amazing. There are other indie promotions, Chikara. There is Lucha Underground, the folks over in the UK who do a great amount of awesome stuff. So we don't necessarily need everything to be super indie. Would it be great if we saw folks like Finn Balor and Kevin Owens and AJ Styles and Shinsuke Nakamura used better in WWE? Yeah, that would be awesome. Can we always get what we want? Nah, not really. Now, that's not necessarily what I wanted to talk about, but it's great that I at least got that off my chest. But what I really want to talk about are the titles or more like the fact that there are too many of them in WWE. And that's something that the good old JR also mentioned in one of his podcasts earlier this year, and I fully agree with that. And I think there is no need really to have 
multiple major belts flying around to have two world championships in WWE, like the WWE Championship and the Universal Championship. There is no reason to have both. Similarly, there is no reason to have two tag team belts or two women championship belts. I think it would be much better to consolidate those and get to the situation where the brands are competing. They battle between each other over who gets to carry those major belts. And I think that's a great idea for a number of reasons. Number one, it gives the lower level belts like the Intercontinental and US Championships more prominence. Now, if you want to, you can take some of the headline acts, some of the main eventers and move them a little bit down the line and have them fight over these, so to speak, lower level belts. But also you get that additional sense of drama when it comes down to fighting over that top belt in the company. Similarly, with the women's division, you have the women on SmackDown and you have the women on Raw fighting over who gets to carry that WWE Women's Championship. It's not just SmackDown or just Raw. I think there is going to be a lot more competition, a lot more fun. You can make whole stories about who gets to be the number one competitor on each brand. It would be amazing. Similarly, tag teams, right? And we know that Vince McMahon and his crew doesn't really care about tag teams. So why do we have two tag team belts? Just make it one tag team belt, have the tag teams fight with each other on the specific brands. And then on the pay-per-views, which are now not brand specific anyway, have them fight over it. Have them fight over who gets to bring the tag team belt home to the brand they come from. I think that would be awesome. It would add additional interactions maybe between general managers of the individual brands, something that we see only around Survivor Series. Now we can kind of build the whole year around those competitions. I think that would be quite a lot of fun. You could also get a second benefit from this, which is you no longer need to structure your storytelling around those belts. It feels to me that a lot of times the scriptwriters in WWE use belts to inflate the drama, to add gravitas. But if you do it all the time, if you have so many belts floating around, that loses its impact. Instead, you could add that belt stipulation or belt condition to it towards the end of a feud rather than at the beginning. You could kind of extend this. Of course... That would mean fewer opportunities for folks like Roman Reigns or Brock Lesnar to hold on to the belts. But really, is that too much of an issue when Brock Lesnar only defended the belt a handful of times? I don't think that's such a big problem. In fact, you would get to see the belt around a lot more. You would get to see people fight over who actually gets to be the number one competitor, number one contender. You could even use the lower division belts as launching pads. Hey, you earned the Intercontinental Championship, Wrestle A, great. Now you can try and fight over 
the number one contendership. And if you win, you relinquish the belt and you get to go and compete over the world championship belt or whatever you call it that at that point. I think that would be awesome. The third benefit of consolidating the belts would then open up the field to adding more belts. There has been a lot of talk about adding women's tag belts, and I think that would be great. But I don't think there is enough in terms of the roster depth to sustain a sufficient amount of tag teams. Right now, with Sasha supposedly injured as well, you only really have the Iconics and maybe the Riot Squad as dominant tag team groups. Maybe the Bellas, if you want to squint your eyes hard enough. But that's about it. So I think it would be great if you consolidate the belts in this sense as well. You wouldn't need to have too many tag teams in one brand, like on SmackDown or on Raw. You could have tag teams kind of peppered in across both brands, maybe even across NXT. I don't think that would be a fault at all. In fact, I think it'd be a lot better overall. And finally, you know, adding on to this situation with belt consolidation, the last thing that they should do, and this is something that the folks over at What Culture mentioned a couple of weeks ago, they should get rid of the rematch clause, right? The fact that automatically the champion who loses or the challenger even sometimes who loses gets to get a rematch. No, I think the rematch clause really takes away from the storytelling and if you are going to go with the belt consolidation, the fact that you have that rematch clause is just not a viable way of keeping the story going because you really want to get more of the talent involved in the title picture. So locking it down between two superstars, two wrestlers with the tool of the rematch clause that just wouldn't work. That would be needlessly bogging things down. And as the folks at What Culture said, look at NJPW, they do not have that rematch clause. And the storytelling and match efficiency and effectiveness and just overall performance of the product doesn't suffer for it. In fact, it benefits. So I definitely agree with that. So as a conclusion of this part of the show, I would say... Consolidate the belts, introduce new belts, get rid of the rematch clause. It's going to be beneficial in the long run, in my humble opinion. But then again, I'm not Vince McMahon. I don't make the big bucks. I'm just a smart on the internet. So take my words for what they're worth there. And that about wraps it up for the wrestling talk. I will just mention that I am a little bit tired of all the glorified house shows that WWE is promoting right now. I am, however, excited about the Evolution pay-per-view. Don't let the internet rowdies scare you off. That show is going to be awesome. I think it's awesome that women now get their own pay-per-view. We need more women matches on the regular scheduled pay-per-views, though. If WWE thinks that now that they give the women performers their own pay-per-view, they don't need to pay attention to the 
regular scheduled ones. No, that's that's not how this works, folks. Uh-uh. You need to keep including women on the main card of the normally scheduled pay-per-views. Or if you don't want to, then you will absolutely need to add more of evolutions, more evolution-like events, because we want to see women wrestling. They are as talented, sometimes more so than the dudes. So make sure you keep promoting this women's evolution and revolution, however you want to call it, further on. Don't just use it as one pay-per-view thing and done. Please, WWE, keep it going. Keep improving. I think you can absolutely do this. And with that, after the break, I will wrap up the Nerdislav podcast today by briefly talking about the UCI Road World Championships. So, Void, don't go anywhere. You are still listening to the Nerdislav podcast with John Paul Haas, and I will be right back. All right, Void, I'm back, and this is the last portion of the show where I talk about the sporty stuff that interests me. So, this is the last part of the Nerdislav podcast. Strap in, we'll go right into all the cycling stuff. So, the team time trials at the UCI Worlds have just transpired. Again, I'm recording this on September 24th, Monday, and on Sunday the women's and men's team time trial took place. It was the last time that the time trials were arranged around the professional teams. Starting next year, they will be doing the national teams, so that's the last time we've seen the time trials as they were. And they were a lot of fun. And I'm going to say that I didn't expect them to turn out quite the way that they did. Had I done the predictions, I would have probably predicted the 2, 3, and 4 as being 1, 2, and 3. So put differently, the team that ended up second, I would have put them to end up first, yada, yada. And the team that won, I actually wouldn't have considered as a competitor at all this year, even though... They have done great in team time trials in the past. Now, without further ado, spoiler alert, you've been warned. The winner of this year's team time trial at the Worlds was Quickstep. And I really didn't see that coming. Based on how time trials have been this year, whenever they appeared in the major races, I didn't expect Quickstep to do quite as well. Now, is it a surprise that they've done well? No. They have won this event in the past. In fact, they have won it three times before. This is their fourth time. But this year, I didn't quite think that they had the talent, especially given how great BMC, who ended up second, have been, how dominant they've been. The only time when BMC didn't win, it was the Sunweb team, so the giant factory team, doing well. So I expected maybe BMC being first and Sunweb being second with Team Sky, which, albeit without Christopher Froome and Garan Thomas, still brought very powerful squads. So I expected them edging into the third, or maybe the third would be more of a toss-up between Team Sky and maybe Quickstep or maybe NL Yambo. There could have been a lot of other teams there to take that third spot. 
but I thought really number one and two, those would be locked, BMC followed up by Sunweb. The fact that Quickstep really edged out the competition by not unreasonable margin was surprising to me. Now, the time trial parkour has not been an easy one by any means. It's been quite mountainous, and in comparison to other team time trials in this season, those have been quite flat, so maybe that's the reason why Quickstep was able to do so well. They really prepared for a parkour that sits well with riders who can both maintain that time trial tempo and climb. Who knows? It was a good race, though. I didn't see it live. I just watched the highlights, but it looked amazing. Some of those moments when the riders were going like 100 kilometers per hour on that downhill looked positively scary. I don't think I would ever be able to do what they do. Those folks are kind of insane, but insane in a good way. Nobody got hurt. Everyone competed to the best of their ability. Overall, quite a fun race. Now, coming up later this week, we will see, of course, the individual time trials and then the road races. And those are going to be a lot of fun, definitely on the UCI pro men's side. So not the under 23 or the juniors. I don't really quite know enough about that. Or the women. I wish really, honestly, that women got more high-profile stage races. I think that would be great. The same way with the wrestling situation. Women need more high-profile events. They still have some, but more is always better, especially since they do get less exposure than the men's side of things. So I'm definitely going to pay attention to what's going on with the women and the young riders, but I am not familiar with those racing scenes enough to make reasonable predictions. Now, honestly, I'm not even comfortable making any reasonable predictions for the men's side. There are so many variables with this year's World Championship that I am uncertain who could come up on top. The time trial is clearly suited for riders who can both climb and ride really well, so with Tom Dimoulin being around, maybe it's going to go to him. He has had kind of good and bad season. He hasn't really done any major victories this past year. So it could be that the Worlds is where he will snatch the double because the parkour in the road race is definitely well suited to climbers. But I honestly don't feel comfortable saying that he will because there are other riders who may want to use the world championships as a way to salvage a season that's been somewhat mediocre. We can think about Nibali, for example, or Fabio Aru, or maybe Adam Yates, who has had kind of iffy Vuelta, of course, as a supporting rider, but definitely iffy Tour de France as the leader. So maybe now it's going to be Simon Yates helping his brother win the World Championship. And that would be something quite interesting if you see the brothers kind of switch the roles. Could happen, absolutely. 
but you can't also discount the Colombian team, especially in the road race. I mean, Colombians have never been particularly good time trialists, but this year they are bringing a really, really strong team for the road race, and whoever will be a leader of that team has to be considered a serious contender. No doubt about that. With Chris Froome and Geraint Thomas missing, of course, it's unfortunate that we won't see them compete, but the field is still jam-packed with star talent. And maybe we could even see Sagan come on top. He is not a straight-out climber, but I think if he's able to hang with the rest of the peloton till the last portion of the race, till the final climb, he could potentially eke out a win. Greg van Avermaet, he could do well. I mean, he's done well in Rio de Janeiro at the Olympics at a race that was somewhat similar. So maybe he could do this as well. And he has had a good season. Maybe Julian Alaphilippe. Why not? He's had smashing Tour de France. There are just so many variables, so many riders that making one prediction is just too damn hard. But you know what? I'll go for it. I will be controversial here and I will say that we're going to see a Tom Dimulan double. There, I said it. Now he's not going to win anything, but wouldn't it be awesome if we did see the Tom Dimulan double? After the Worlds wrap-up, there are not really going to be that many major races. A few smaller ones, but not enough to really talk about cycling a lot for an extended period of time. So you will be free void of my cycling ramble till next spring, especially as Giro is coming up, as, as the spring classics are coming up. I will definitely talk about that some more, but for the rest of the year, you can expect much less of the cycling talk. Not sure what I'm going to fill this space with. Maybe nothing. Maybe I'll just talk about esports instead because, hey, BlizzCon is coming and there are some really cool stories as we head into the StarCraft World Championship, the global one, the final final. So maybe I'll talk about that here. Or maybe I'll bring in some other sports just to annoy the people who don't like to listen to this stuff. With that said, Void, we are going to wrap up. I've recorded for about 45 minutes. I think this is a good time to stop. Thanks again for listening. My name is John Paul Hoss. This is the Nerdislav podcast. If you want to hear more, you can absolutely find more episodes at www.nerdislav.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Nerdislav. You can listen to me on Anchor directly or any other podcasting app. I believe this podcast streams to all of them. So thanks again, Void, and cheers. I will talk to you again soon.